0: Hey there and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of July 16th through the 18th, 2021. My name is Paulo and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. After last week's record-breaking Black Widow premiere, uh, we've got some spicy news about its second week drops to go over. And on top of that, we have a couple new premieres, uh, with most notably being Space Jam A New Legacy, which I saw on HBO Max before I downgraded my account to the ad-supported version. My thoughts on that movie will be at the end of the show, but for now, let's hop into the numbers, shall we? In first place, we have Warner's Space Jam, A New Legacy, starring Lebron James in an HBO Max and a theatrical simultaneous release. It made $31 million in 3,965 theaters, for a per theater average of $7,832, just behind Godzilla vs. Kong's opening weekend numbers of $32 million, though it does beat the original Space Jam's opening at $27.5 million back from 1996, not adjusted for inflation. That is on the top end of what Box Office Pro predicted that the film would make at $30 million. Reception was pretty good, with an A- from CinemaScore and an 81% from Audience on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, though the critics didn't like it at 32%. Now, if this holds up like Godzilla vs Kong has, it'll have a little over 3x multiplier and end up at about $100 million, potentially higher due to the family-friendly nature. Uh, Internationally, it's made $23 million in its opening weekend for a total of $54.7 million worldwide, leading with Australia despite lockdowns in some of the big metro areas. Uh, No date has yet been set for a release in China, which given their love for basketball and presumably LeBron James' love for money from the Chinese market, supposedly, uh, that should go pretty well. Uh, We'll see if it's able to make up the $150 million production budget, plus advertising, though I'm sure with all the merchandising opportunities, uh, it'll be able to clear that even if the numbers we'll never see. Uh, also, a fun fact, according to Samba TV, uh, when they mess with the HBO Max uh, streaming numbers, um, you know, HBO Max streaming in Cleveland, home of LeBron, was 18% higher than the norm for this film, which you know makes sense given he's their hometown hero. Now, Space Jam story in and of itself is, you know, pretty interesting. It is able to open at the top, which some, there was some debate about, uh, because, you know, it was able to beat Black Widow, um, and that's kind of, I think, the big story this weekend. Um, you know, it's obviously Space Jam opening to $30 million. is nowhere close to the $80 million that Black Widow opened. So in its second weekend, Black Widow had to drop... uh, to $25.8 million in 4,275 theaters, uh, the most of any movie to date post-pandemic and also the highest drop of any MCU film in its second weekend. Um, Overall, the per theater average is $6,046 and it currently has a -a 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 running total of $131.6 million domestically. So what happened? Why did this drop? Was it because of Premiere Access? As many people are saying, was it because of piracy? Uh, Was it because the story just wasn't compelling? Uh, Is this just a new reality of movies post-pandemic life going forward? Um, And is this actually that bad of a drop? So again, let's put this in context with other recent Marvel films. And granted, these are pre-pandemic, but hang with me for a bit. Uh, Black Widow, as we know, has a 68% drop. Uh, far from Spider-Man Far From Home, 51%. Endgame, 59%. Captain Marvel, 56%. Ant-Man and the Wasp, 62%, which is the second highest drop after Black Widow. Uh, Black Panther had 45% drop, Thor Ragnarok 53% drop, the second Guardians of the Galaxy film 55% drop, and Doctor Strange 49% drop. So Black Widow is, again, definitely on the steeper end of the drop for a Marvel film in recent memory. If we say that the other films average out to about a 55% drop, then this is about 12% steeper than that on average. But uh, it is a pandemic after all, so how do other films fare in this post-pandemic world? Well. Looking at another recent big blockbuster franchise, Fast and the Furious F nine and its recent films has some some drops as well. Uh, F nine also dropped sixty eight percent or so. Uh, Hobbs and saw the spin off dropped fifty nine percent, a couple fifty eight percent a couple years back. Uh, F- Fate of the Furious dropped sixty one percent, and then the high I believe the highest grossing film domestically of the Fast and Furious franchise F seven uh, dropped sixty uh, percent. So Fast and the Furious nine again has an identical drop to Black Widow. However the Fast Saga has a steeper baseline for its second-week drops, about a 60% average total. So, you know, that's only a 7% drop versus the norm versus Black Widow's 12% drop versus the Marvel films norms. Add to that that A, uh, F9's second weekend happened to fall on the 4th of July weekend uh, which is a historically weaker day for movie going. You'll see this in the Monday numbers for uh, July 5th. Um, fa- uh, it definitely uh, overperformed versus the week prior for uh, fa- for F9. Uh, in addition, the Fast and the Furious franchise um, generally has lower ratings than uh, than Marvel films and F9 specifically has lower ratings than Black Widow uh, 58 to 67 on Metacritic 59 to 80 on Rotten Tomatoes and Eighty-two to ninety-two for the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, generally, a, a lower score um, in the uh, in an audience score gen- tends to correlate to poor word of mouth, meaning it's going to have a steeper drop anyway. Um, so you know the fact that they have the same drop is a sign that you know F nine is either doing better than expected here or. Black Widow is doing worse than expected, likely the latter. And then even adding on to that, which I just remembered, uh, Toronto and Ontario actually just opened this past weekend. So Black Widow has the benefit of having, uh, you know, 40 percent, you know, Toronto and Ontario make up about forty percent of the Canadian box office, uh, which is not nothing, right? It's 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 a relatively small portion. I think I think something like the five to ten percent of total domestic box office. Um, F nine didn't have that, so that kind of like pushes it down further. That hey, Black Widow is, also has you know an, an entire new market, more some more theaters, but it doesn't have that, but it doesn't have the same uh, draw. So. The big elephant in the room is, of course, that Black Widow was available on Premier Access, uh, where F9 did not have an equivalent day in date release streaming. Uh, so, can that five percent difference between Black Widow's twelve percent drop versus its Marvel counterparts and F9's seven percent drop versus its uh, its counterparts be explained by Premier Access? Um, well, let's take a look at some of those numbers. We only have two numbers for Ryan for Raya and Cruella from Disney Plus, but they dropped thirty-three percent and forty-nine percent, respectively, in their second weekends. So, in that regard, this is a much worse performance from Black Widow. And theaters, again, given that R- 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 Ryan Quill have so that drops need to be so severe. Though, again, to counter that, uh, Black Widow is a f- comic book film which tends to be a little bit more front loaded in general. Now, if you look at other day and date release streaming services, namely HBO Max, we see a range from Mortal Kombat 73%, which is even worse than Black Widow, uh, and in the height 63%, to Godzilla vs. Kong and The Conjuring's uh, more average 57%. Um, some post-pandemic films without a streaming release are Acquired Place 2 at 59% in its second weekend, uh, The Hitman Wife's Bodyguard at 57%, and Spiral at 47%, which is definitely way better than you'd expect. So what's the situation here? There is no one clear answer, but I think it's a confluence of different things coming together um, that kind of contributes to, let's call it that uh, 5% difference between uh, uh, Black Widow and, uh, and F9. First, Premiere Access absolutely had an impact. When Disney announced that $60 million worldwide, which, according to Samba TV, probably was closer to $33 million within the States, um, ended up buying the film on Disney Plus opening weekend, there was definitely discussion that a number of those purchases were from people who would have otherwise gone back to rewatch the film after seeing it in theaters the first time. So, you know, go see the film in theaters the first time and then go buy it again uh, from from Premiere Access. Uh, For Disney, that's a... potentially a win-win right if they're able to keep you know upwards of 85 percent of the of the premiere access um but on the other hand if you're you know previously if you would have had to pay to see the film you know three four times in theaters to get everything if you're a fanboy and they want to see it multiple times then you know premiere access you just pay the 130 dollar fee and you can do it as many times as you want so um that's not great for disney um you know in in addition, you know, in addition to people who, who buy it and see it, you know, buy, see it in theaters and buy it at home afterwards, um, some of people, you know, maybe would have just bought it on familiar access because they would not have gone to see it in theaters at all. Um, now, while there are people who are, are that case, like, you know, they don't want to be going into a movie theater at all, they're just kind of willing to just let it pass, um, there are some people who likely bought it, um, they, they would have seen it in the first weekend, but they decided, hey, you know, I'm just going to buy it at home instead, right? Um, so they're losing on, on the repeat viewings from them. And in addition, I think most relevant to this week, um, people who, for one reason or another, maybe they had plans, maybe they were out of town, they couldn't see the film in theaters uh, on opening weekend, right? So they decided, oh, I'll just buy it on Disney Plus at home, which means the second weekend, when they normally would have gone to see it in theaters after not casting it the first weekend, they're no longer seeing it in theaters they're just this it from Premiere Act, the first weekend, um, so and and because of they've bought it the first weekend, you don't get the second, the third, fourth week revenue. Um, so in essence, Disney Plus basically sifted all the revenue from later weeks in theaters to buying it on Disney Plus in the first week. Um, and, you know, how, how that mixes up, how many times people are going to go see it in theaters multiple times, we don't really know. Right? We, we can't run an A-B test to compare that against what a reality like that would have been like. But the fact remains that, you know, there probably are people who would have seen it multiple times in theaters that now because they can just buy it on Disney Plus at home, they can't do that. Um, obviously we can't attribute again we can't attribute how much of that drop is to this, but I have to imagine that after this Disney is seriously reconsidering premiere access for the MCU films post uh jungle cruise. Now again, that's not the only reason. Another part of the factor is that narratively, uh, again, spoilers uh, if you haven't seen it yet, though it sounds like everyone has at this point, uh, the film is about a character who's already died in the cinematic universe in question, set after a film that came out five years ago, not even after the most recent films. So again, there are definitely fans of Backwitter who definitely wanted to see this film get made, as far as being a must-watch film for the MCU, and despite the good word of mouth, I don't think it has the same urgency to say as the debut of a new Avenger or sequel for another character who we know is going to be coming back in the future, say Doctor Strange and the Madness of the Multiverse coming up, so that's probably a bit of a hard sell, and that's probably why Black Widow also um, maybe wouldn't have had as many as many repeat viewers as you know uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which I saw three times in theaters. So, you know, you probably see a lot of people taking talking to the trades how it's probably due to piracy to some degree. I don't really think that's the case for domestic numbers per se, even though apparently it was the number one pirated film on torrentfreak.com where piracy, I think, really becomes an issue is in Southeast Asia and China, where the film has not yet released on Disney Plus or in theaters, sorry. Um, The form is due to COVID lockdowns. uh, The latter is due to not yet having a release date um, in China because of the unofficial blackout uh, during the month of July and, I think, August as well. So, in those regions, piracy is definitely more impactful, and with a high-definition rip-out for several weeks before it comes to theaters, that's probably going to cut into into ticket sales, especially with, I think, a mediocre word of mouth that it has in China. already. Um, At least for Fast and the Furious 9, it it didn't release on streaming ahead of its China debut, so even if its run in China was ultimately underwhelming based on what their expectations were, I still think it was able to secure those ticket sales before the US release. Obviously, I imagine Kevin Feige wouldn't want Black Widow to release in China a full month before the US release due to not having spoilers floating around online, but I think it's just a rough situation all around for them. So TLDR or TLDL I guess on the Black Widow drop situation is definitely more severe than people were anticipating and probably due to a confluence, confluence of reasons ranging f- including narratively not being a super necessary to the multi, to the universe as well as being a premier access essentially moving future revenue up to the first week leading to higher drops in the second week and the sort of sort of legs. So I think the real impact will be on whether or not China will allow this film to pop off or not um, due to the potential privacy issues. Now we don't have second week numbers from Premier Access for Black Widow, despite Disney releasing them last weekend. Samba TV, though, suggests that it's in its first after its first weekend, which saw 1.1 million households in the U.S. buying it um, on Monday, the 12th, through this past Sunday, the 18th. Uh, it saw another 900,000 households for a cool two million total over the past, you know, uh, weekend about 10 days or so. Um, the National Association of Theater Owners definitely harped on this, um, blasting Disney for the steep drop in theatrical numbers and for you know, not sharing the second weekend numbers. In any case, though, going back to those numbers, at least theatrically, um, you know, for Black Widow, it's Friday total of $8 million. That was actually 80% drop versus last week, which is stupidly high. Um, Saturday had $10 million and Sunday at $7 million, So about a 55 and 58% uh, day over day drop. Excluding the premiere access that we were announced last week, since we don't have any this week, domestically so far, again, it's made $131.6 million, which co- crossed that $100 million mark on its sixth day, I believe, this past Wednesday. Um, Overseas, it's made another $132 million uh, for $263.6 million lifetime, again, without China. Uh, The top market so far is South Korea at $19.1 million, with the UK in second place at $15.86, and France with $11.5 million rounding out the top three. Uh, We'll see if it's able to leg it out to beat Godzilla versus Kong at $463, or F9 at $591 million. I have a feeling this isn't going to get north of of 300, much less, I don't, I think even 250 might be a bit of a stretch potentially uh um uh domestically so you know I don't I don't know if it's going to get to uh even 400 million dollars uh for Godzilla vs. Kong so I don't know it'll likely be a quiet place too at 285 million dollars worldwide but uh yeah I don't think it's going to it's going to be the top grossing film of the year for sure now, we'll get to F9's numbers shortly, but in the third place, we do have a new film from Sony, Escape Room 2, Champion, Tournament of Champions, uh, which is a sequel to the 2019 Escape Room film. Uh, this one opens to $8.8 million in 2,185 theaters for a theater average of $4,028. Um, you know, Compare that to the original film, opening to $18 million in 2,717 theaters. Um, This is definitely operating below that, though I guess that's kind of the the prediction for a sequel. Um, Not much else to add to this film's discussion, aside from $4.5 million internationally, for a lifetime total of $13.3 million worldwide, off of a budget of $15 million. Uh, Typical low-budget horror film stuff. Um, Also worth noting, this is the film that AMC recently provided a free screening of for their investors before it was officially released stop. Now, in fourth place, we have F9, as promised, with its fourth weekend making $7.6 million. That's a 33% drop in 3,368 theaters for a per theater average of $2,278. That puts it over the $150 million mark domestically at $154.8 million. Abroad, is hit $436.8 million for $591.7 million worldwide, so definitely hit the $600 million mark by next week, though, sort of Detective Chinatown 3 in the 2021 later. Board at $700 million. Uh, Specifically, it opened in France and Germany this weekend, bringing its total number of markets up to 57. Now, riding on the top five, we have Boss Baby 2 making $4.7 million in 3,449 theaters, a 47% drop to a per theater average of $1,371 in its third weekend. Domestically, so far, it's made $44.6 million, less than $4 million abroad. It brings its lifetime totals to $48.3 million. Now, outside the top five, we have some new films. Roadrunner, a film about de- Anthony Bourdain and documentary form, uh, from Focus Features, made a cool $1.9 million in 927 theaters for per theater average of $2,145. Again, not bad for a documentary. I believe this is double the, the take of uh, what Questlove's Summer of Soul did. Um, and then Neon released a new Nicholas Cage film called Pig in 552 theaters to $970,000 per theater average of $1,759. Overall, the total box office sits at $91.5 million this week, dropping back a bit from the nearly $120 million opening weekend of Black Widow last weekend. Um, this upcoming weekend we do have two new wide releases. Uh, we have Old, the new M. Night Shyamalan film, a thriller from Universal, opens with Box Office Pro, predicting they'll make 12 to $22 million, um, you never know with a Shyamalan film. Uh, and then we have Snake Eyes from Paramount, a soft reboot of the G.I. Joe film franchise, starring Henry Golding, forecasted to make $20 to 40 million dollars. Honestly, I think it's going to be actually pretty tight with G.I. Joe underperforming uh, and old potentially overperforming depending on how Samalan does it um, since you know, I don't know who, who's eager for a new G.I. Joe film so it'll be interesting to see who actually ends up taking a uh, number one film this coming weekend. Also, I figured I'd put this in here, but apparently Fathom Events is going to be partnering with Studio Leica to re-release Coraline in theaters for a limited release uh, in August and Paranorman in October, which would be fun. I've never actually seen Coraline yet, so it might be cool to see that in theaters. Now, looking at the international box office, first we have Luca, the Pixar film, which did not have a de- domestic release um, due to being for free on Disney+. Plus. So far, it's made $23.7 million internationally on its fifth weekend. Um, at, at about the same time, Seoul had $71.2 million, but that includes China. So if you include China's total at that time, um, it's closer to $23 million, which is pretty much on par for what Luca does. Um, so, you know, I guess that, that that is good, I guess, for Luca. Um, according to Nielsen, it also basically had a similar number of Total minutes watched in its opening week compared to Soul, about one point five billion minutes, or about sixteen point six times seen, sixteen point six million times seen. Um, you know, so you know that's definitely again comparable to what Soul did at the same time uh, in its opening weekend. Now moving to Japan, we have Mamoru Hosoda's new animated film Bell, opening to 890 million yen, about 8 million US dollars, topping the box office over there. Uh, notably, this film also screened at the Cannes Film Festival and received a 14-minute applause standing ovation, uh, the seventh longest in Cannes history. And that sounds kind of weird. Uh, it's kind of a thing at the Cannes Film Festival for super long ovations. I believe the record for the all-time is 22 minutes for Pan's Labyrinth, and Parasite, uh, which actually won the Palme d'Or, uh, had an eight-minute ovation. Hopefully, this bodes well for Bell's eventual release in the US by G Kids and their Oscar campaign to get it nominated, though winning may be a whole other thing, you know, with Disney's kind of domination over that category. Um, speaking of Cannes, though, the film festival wrapped up with Julia Ducanel's, um French film Titan taking the Palme d'Or, which actually accidentally spoiling the winner early during the award ceremony. And also real quickly, back to Japan. Apparently, there was a fundraiser for the Studio Ghibli Museum to raise money to help recover from a year without tourism. In the first 24 hours, the 10 million yen, or about $90,000, uh, fundraising goal was met, with total, the total currently sitting north of $200,000, US dollars, with over, almost 200 days left in the, in the fundraising campaign. Not strictly box office news per se, but hey, it's related to a movie studio's finances. Uh, Speaking of, again, not quite box office related, but still studio related, Paramount is apparently developing Southeast Asia's largest theme park based on their properties in Bali, uh, which seems odd, but then again, Universal Studios is a thing. So, you know, in a little bit more serious international news, with regard to reopenings, first, the positive. Movie theaters in Ontario and, as I mentioned, in Toronto, and by extension, 40% of the Canadian box office are back open. Again, technically, I guess domestic numbers, um, but, you know, this is still great news to hear. This does include Cineplex, the largest Canadian uh, movie chain, um, with coming back at 50% capacity. On the downside for reopening, though, with the Delta variant spreading, European countries are starting to require proof of vaccination to enter movie theaters along among other establishments, such as restaurants, cafes, and trains, in order to help encourage people to vaccinate. Now, over 100,000 anti-vaxxers protested in the streets over this, um, though a more reasonable, I guess, uh, depending on your perspective. Three million people rushed to get their first appointments done upon hearing the restrictions coming in place. So while depending on your view of the role of government in private lives may vary, there's definitely going to be, I think, some sort of impact on the European box office as a result. Um, Similarly, in China, various cities are now requiring... Proof via an app of your phone, probably facilitated by the government's uh, central database of its citizens, of proof of vaccination in order to enter a movie theater. I'm kind of curious, you know, if guarantee, if, if you know, if movie theaters like you know AMC Regal and Cinemark were to guarantee that hey, everyone who's attending has shown that they're vaccinated, uh, we can verify that they're vaccinated. Would that make people who otherwise would not have gone to movie theaters feel comfortable about going to movie theaters if they knew everyone was? in there was going to be vaccinated, and would that number of people increased basically mean that, you know, the people who would no longer be able to go, and the people who aren't fully vaccinated, um, would, you know, which, which group is bigger, people who would go to theaters, but otherwise wouldn't, or people who are going to theaters, even if they're not fully vaccinated, Just a little cool thought experience, I, I guess, estimates to try to do. Um, now speaking of uh, now, we'll we'll talk about the US opening in a little bit. But in before that, let's hop back to the Chinese box office real quick. Uh, in first place, we have the Chinese drop uh, the drama Chinese Doctors opening to uh, dropping only eighteen percent in the second weekend, op- uh, making forty four point two million dollars for an additional adding to its total of one hundred thirty six point nine million dollars so far. In second place, we have the musical comedy Day We Lit Up, The Sky, opening to $11.8 million. And then in third place, the animated adventure film Master Ji Gong opened to $42 million. In fourth place, we have family comedy High Brother opening to $3.2 million. And then rounding out of the top five in, the thir- in its third week is the propaganda film 1921, adding $2.5 million to its $70.9 million total so far. Now, back to the domestic news, According uh, due to the Delta variant spreading, uh, with up cases up 500% and uh, test positivity spiking 700%, Los Angeles is reimposing their indoor mask cap uh, uh, requirement for movie theaters, though not quite moving to a full shutdown or restrictions otherwise. Um, as I noted a few weeks back, with the UK being on a month ahead of, of the US when it comes to uh, COVID trends, we should start seeing the Delta variant definitely spreading more and potentially more restrictions being imposed. Post in, in other parts of the country as well, though I don't know the full extent. Since you know, I don't think it'll be politically popular to go to a full shutdown. Uh, Notably, according to a map from the Mayo Clinic, the biggest contributors to the domestic box office, California and and New York, have the highest vaccination rates at over 60 percent with one dose. While the more conservative, less box office important states such as Louisiana and Alabama are sub 40 percent vaccinated. In any case, uh, if you can, please get vaccinated, wear a mask, especially if you're around kids, since apparently the Delta variant spreads through unvaccinated kids below the age of 12. Um, And yeah, I believe, and you know, wash your hands. So. Uh, hopefully, the fact that, you know, the, the for the box office at least, hopefully, the fact that, you know, the regions more important for the box office, New York and California, are more vaccinated up means that we hopefully shouldn't see uh, a decrease in the box office uh, for the latter half of the summer into the fall. Anyway, some other brief headlines. Uh, Dune's runtime just got confirmed at 2 hours and 35 minutes, a bit shorter than the 2 hours and 43 minutes of Blade Runner 2049 from the same director, but not by much. Uh, the longer runtime will definitely have an impact on how many times a theater can run the film, uh, so we'll see how that impacts a box office take. Um, crazy that they tried to make it two different films. Um, in any case, we've also hit the 45-day window day window of The Acquired Place 2 being in theaters, and as such, it is also now available on Paramount+. Plus. Um, Speaking of streaming, Netflix and Universal are extending their licensing deal with regard to animated feature films. After four months of being on Peacock, presumably after some theatrical windows, they'll push the films to Netflix. This includes Minions the Rise of Gru in 2022. Interestingly, this is after Universal moved their own feature films in that time period to be on their own streaming service, Peacock, as opposed to on HBO, so curious why they didn't do this with the same animated films. Now, aside from that, Net- from Universal, Netflix is also making a deal with Gold House. It's a nonprofit in charge of Gold Open, which you know does through buyouts to help Asian films and Asian-led films do better, such as Crazy Rich Asians. Um, they're working with them to form Netflix Gold, essentially a, p- a promotional arm to help promote uh, a- Asian-American talent, Asian and Asian-American talent on the platform. Uh, this kicked off with a party in Miami, I believe, for Mindy Kaling's uh, the second season of Mindy Kaling's TV series Never Have I Ever. Um, so yeah, this is kind of a move by Goldhouse and, and Netflix uh, to move away just from theater buyouts also helping with the streaming side of things. Now, in some insider baseball news, with Bob Iger leaving Disney at the end of the year as Chapek will gain control, uh, Chief Communications Officer Xenia Busha and uh, Corporate General Counsel Alan Waverman, who are both uh, Iger uh, devotees, will join their boss as he leaves Disney again at the end of the year. And then apparently, 43% of movie theaters and live entertainment venues, about 6,000 out of 15,000, who applied for small business administration relief as part of the Suttered Venue Operations Grant, uh, received those grants. So that'll bodes well for the recovery of the industry. And we also got an interview from the IMAX CEO saying that because AMC's stock price surged during the Wall Street bets stuff going on, uh, AMC was able to renegotiate their deals, which then allowed them to help essentially upgrade more of their theaters to include IMAX screens, which just bodes well. So, just kind, kind of cool to see how the Wall Street bets phenomenon not only helped AMC stock, but also helped IMAX as well. So, in any case, like I said at the top of the show, uh, I ended up watching Space Jam this weekend, though it was on HBO Max, not in theaters. Again, I wasn't super hyped about it and didn't feel like spending money. But since I had just change my HBO Max account and downgrade from the full $15 account to the ad-supported $10 account that does not have day-and-date releases, I figured, hey, why not? You know, make this uh, take, take 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 this last hurrah and see the uh, HBO Max films, uh, and specifically uh, Space Jam, in theaters. Uh, sorry, on, on TV, um, since, you know, I had heard some stuff about some weird cameos. So want to see what that was about. Uh, spoilers for Space Jam 2 coming up. I don't really don't care about about it too much, um, which kind of says a lot about it, I guess. Anyway, it's been a while since I've seen the original Space Jam film as a kid, so my collect- recollections and comparisons may be a bit off, but I definitely have fond feelings for it. Um, you know it's pretty campy to some degree, but hey that's just something despite that campiness maybe because of the campiness um, for all its zeniness, it definitely has a lot of heart that I think defined a lot of 90s media. As far as the sequel, which it is in fact a sequel since they reference the original film here, with a joke about finding Michael Jordan in the crowd, it turns out to be Michael B. Jordan, despite playing uh, the the Bulls theme song, and you know the monsters also showing up in the cameo. Um, you know, I I don't think you know I think. Uh, while there may be debate whether or not LeBron is a better player than Michael Jordan was I don't think the film is better than what Space the original Space Jam was um, I think my problem with this film is that the original you know obviously part of it is there's a conflict with the basketball player the original film was about Michael Jordan you know kind of what is his legacy he's kind of retired from the game what is he supposed to do with himself Play, and Playing playing bas- and not playing basketball anymore for LeBron it's supposedly like this family dynamic thing the thing is right like with Michael Jordan Right, the whole question of legacy and like you know what what will he ever be able to stay away from the game for too long? Right, that's a story I think that is definitely, if not told in Space Jam, I think at the time was definitely something that was kind of like in the air. Whereas for Michael, for LeBron, right, like him being the best basketball player and then like having all of his kids, you know, being like a not really great dad toward his kid who'd rather be a coder than a basketball player. I don't really get a sense of that outside of this, so I didn't. I guess maybe it didn't feel as believable, um, and then, you know I think the other part of that is that you know Lebron, uh, you know, being you know, you know being a good aside. I think LeBron's attitude toward his son of, like, not having fun on the game and, you know, basketball being fun and, oh, it's a game. I think, like, a lot of different themes in you know, there that didn't quite coalesce into one. And, you know, his approach to, like, oh, we need to focus on the fundamentals in the on the court really hammered, I think, the Looney Tunes, since they were trying for a lot of it, trying to play to his style, which really just hampers what the Looney Tunes can do. Like, the best parts were when they were kind of able to let loose and be a little bit zany. Um... And, and so I think that's what makes them tick. You know, never mind the Lola Bunny redesign, which, you know, did they really need to have Zendaya voice her? I, you know, um, when all the others got their normal voice actors. Um, also, did they really need to bring Looney Tunes into 3D in the first place? I mean, so it may be a flex that they can do this redesign, but honestly, I think there's something real charming about, you know, the mixed media look between 2D and 3D. And honestly, the first half of the movie, after LeBron is zaps to the server version, is animated in 2D, where the Looney Tunes as Bugs tries to bring the gang back together, for, that could have been a movie in and of itself, as they travel through the, the server-verse, as it's called, of Warner Brothers' catalog, which, frankly, A, makes this film, film feel film feel more like a flex or advertisement for HBO Max and all the content they have in the vault, not unlike how I felt about Black Widow being essentially an advertisement for Disney Plus in its post credit scene, and then B, the presence of various Warner properties on the sidelines during the games was super distracting, seeing the white Warners just chilling out. As far as the original characters go, Don Cheadle as Algy Rhythm, har har, actually kind of makes Warner Brothers looks pretty bad. Contrary to that, um, you know, for soft admitting that A, their employees don't know what they're doing, uh, you know, given that Steve Ewan and and Sarah Silverman's characters kind of just go where the algorithm tells them to do without thinking about it. Uh, B, uh, they're making content by just recycling the same content, like the same IPs over and over again without doing anything really new and innovatively. And then C, they're secretly, not so secretly, spying on your devices wherever you are and whatever you do, which is. Again, supposed to be funny. Um, the Lagoon squad who plays against the Looney Tunes are supposed to be NBA and WNBA players, but frankly it felt super dull and uninspired with very little personality compared to the original Monsters. And okay, sorry, if you made it through the full two-hour film, and spoiler, Bugs ends up sacrificing himself and is deleted to save the toons and win the game, uh, but then he appears at the end of the film in the real world without literally an explanation beyond, yeah, I'm a toon, whatever, nothing really kills me, which really kills the emotional impact, The what little emotional impact this film had about Bugs, you know, making the sacrifice and being the leader of the Tunes. Um, You know, not that I expected him to actually stay dead, but at the very least, give us something, uh, an explanation for why that doesn't feel super lazy. Overall, I give a space jam somewhere in the one to two out of five stars range. It it doesn't utilize the Looney Tunes to their full potential and contorts them into something they're not. The plot that LeBron James engages in feels super forced with the moral being, you're never going to live up to LeBron James' standards, so you might as well just be yourself, which feels kind of depressing. Um, And then, you know, Perhaps the biggest sin of all, and then, you know, the, the whole HBO Max thing is basically big out for that, and what little world building and plot we get there just feels kind of misguided. Um, perhaps the biggest sin of all, though, they didn't use the original or even the remix of Come On, to the, come on and Slam at all. Uh, that at least that I could hear in the film. So honestly, you'd probably just be better off instead of watching uh, a Space Jam 2. um, Just watch the 48-minute, listen to the 48-minute mashup of the original Space Jam soundtrack with the Hamilton soundtrack called Slammleton that someone made online. Trust me, it's worth it. It's absolute gold. And with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. You can suit me ideas for what else I should cover via email at at boxofficewatchpodcast.com or on Twitter at podcast. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, tell a friend, any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which helps me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Uh, links to all of that will be in our show notes. Numbers in this episode come from TheNumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod at compedict.films.io. And in productions provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on.